You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. So, um, one of the great joys of this um, job is being able to feature authors and books that you just really enjoy. And uh, tonight's title is really such an example of a book that's just been so painstakingly and lovingly produced. And when we saw, even before it reached any of the catalogs, the rep told us about this and we got the little sneak preview of it and we got very, very excited. And so it's a great honor to have Aaron Cohen here with us tonight. He teaches humanities and journalism and English composition at the uh, City College of Chicago. He's received um, numerous kind of um, honors for his work, a public scholarship fellowship from the National Endowment of the Humanities. Uh, he's also a two-time recipient of the Deems Taylor Award for Outstanding Music Writing from the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. Uh, his articles have appeared in the Chicago Tribune and Downbeat, uh, Washington Post, and The Nation. He's also the author of Ruth Franklin's Amazing Grace. And tonight we are celebrating Move On Up, uh, aptly titled uh, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. It's published by our friends at University of Chicago Press, and it's really truly a singular and, and you know very, very, as I said earlier, painstakingly and lovingly produced work that just looks at the sociopolitical, the, but the cultural currents of Chicago, and um, there is just so much in there, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So please join us in giving him a very warm welcome, Aaron Cohen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Peter. Thank you. It's a real honor to be at City Lights. I mean, I've, I know its history. I know its legacy. And so to be a part of that as a reader is I mean, just, I get the chills. And, um, thank you all of you for coming on you know, a Tuesday night. And I know there's a lot to do in this wonderful city. So for all of you to be here, that's, that's just terrific. I'm not actually... I was posing with the book when my friend Dylan here was taking a picture. I'm not actually going to read from it. I don't like to read from the book because it's already there in the book. And um, I also have a fear that I'm going to see a typo and I'll be like, oh, no, don't buy it. It's, it's tainted. It's wrong. It's hideous. No, no. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. There are no typos I've found so far. Um, but one of the things I wanted to uh, – so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start talking about some subjects uh, that I talk about in the book and – why I wrote the book, and I'm going to go on from there. So I'm going to start and open up. And um, oh, should we kind of reclaim my CD? So, um, so anyway, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up by talking about some certain subjects and themes in the book, and then from there move on to other topics and in the book and why I wrote it. Um, so one of the things I wanted to actually mention, and because I'm in San Francisco and I thought coming to San Francisco, um, I would tailor my talk about this great city and its history. Um, so one of the things that I was asked to do after this book came out is to do an extended essay on Minnie Ripperton, who I write about in the book and her group Rotary Connection. And this is actually um, her right here. Um, passing the joint along to other members of the group, which was a shocking back cover photo when it came out in 1967. Um, so anyway, so um, 
one of the so I'm reading about Minnie Ripton again after you know putting my stuff away, and I came across an article about Minnie Ripton in the Melody Maker from 1975, and it said that. Even though this is 1975, Minnie Ripperton still exerts San Francisco circa 1967. Now, I think all of you here know what that refers to is the whole counterculture, um, the whole Haight-Ashbury scene, the whole uh, movement that happened here. And I'm not going to belittle that at all because it is very important. However, um, Minnie Ripperton actually yes, represented the 1960s, even into the 1970s, but it was a counterculture in Chicago, too. And one of the things I wanted to talk about in this book was how even though the counterculture movement in Chicago was not as big as here, not as pervasive as it was here, it was still very strong in Chicago. And Chicago then, as of now, as many of you probably know, is very segregated. And there was a brief moment in the late 1960s when, I don't like to use this metaphor, but I keep using it, so uh, since we're here in the poetry section, if someone come up with a better image, please let me know. Um, sort of like there was like this sort of slight movement of maybe some flowers coming up through the concrete, the sort of concrete segregation. And there was this hope that, you know, um, African-American musicians, white musicians, black musicians, uh, country folk musicians, Judy Houff, uh rock musicians, experimental classical musicians could come together in this band, Rotary Connection. And Minnie Ripperton was the lead singer of that group. And so it was, you know, the Chicago answer to, say, the Bay Area Sly and the Family Stone. Slightly, slightly different in a way in the sense that, uh, number one, you had a singer, Minnie Ripperton, who had a five-octave vocal range. You had a producer, a man named Charles Stepney. Anybody familiar with him? A few hands go up. Anybody not familiar with him? More hands go up. So I'm going to talk about him in a second. Um, and you had this band that came together in the Chess Record studio, the home of Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry, The Dells, and on and on and on. This real experimental you know, combination of different forces, different factors, different people. And they were, you know, even though they didn't necessarily sing about harmony, they lived it, they experienced it, they, they were harmony for a little while. And let me get back to Charles Stepney for a second before I play this one track that I'm going to play. So they came together in the studio in Chicago because Charles Stepney, who was a vibraphonist, a pianist, he was also a classical composer. And he was an experimental classical composer and a jazz musician. And he was reading avant-garde books on classical music theory by people like Henry Cowell. And he was getting into this very abstract mathematical system of composition, the Joseph Schillinger system. He was studying that along with his friend, Muhal Richard Abrams, who went on to co-found the AACM Jazz Cooperative, and his other friend, Eddie Harris, who was a saxophonist. Charles Stepney is not making money as a classical composer. He's not making money to, as a jazz musician. He's working as a copyist at Chess Records, 
copying music so they could send it to the copyright office, and he's getting $15 a sheet. Marshall Chess, the son of the famous Leonard Chess, becomes friends with Charles Stepney, even though they have very different personalities. Charles Stepney is much older. He's much serious. Uh, Marshall Chess is here sort of waiting for his turn at the joint that's passed around. Uh, Stepney himself was a very strict disciplinarian, but uh, they're hanging out in the Chess Records Commissary, and uh, Marshall Chess, you know, the white Jewish son of Leonard Chess, sees this African-American classical composer and says, wow, you're a composer. Ain't that some stuff? I'm going to call up some people at the Chicago Symphony. We're going to make some records with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. We're going to get a group together. And they came together with a guy who was working there named Sidney Barnes, who was a free spirit himself. He had come to Chicago after living in Detroit, working with a guy named George Clinton. And to this day, Sidney Barnes is still George Clinton's right-hand man and the guy who sort of tries to keep George Clinton on the... How do I put this? Well, anyway. So they're all hanging out there in the Chess Record studio, all these different types of people. And um, they get together, they're playing. Um, and so it's this new, new, new vision of what could be. And they become popular in white rock clubs. And they bring in an African-American uh, countercultural audience with a white countercultural audience in the north side of Chicago. And they're playing in festivals. And um, Sidney Barnes told me that uh, they were supposed to play Woodstock, but their manager thought they wouldn't get enough money. And um, so, but I said to Sidney, well, you played the Ann Arbor Festival with the MC5 and the Stooges. Isn't that cooler? <laughs> anyway, so um, they broke up. But before they broke up in 1970, and Minnie Riperton was guided towards this great solo career, she and her husband, Richard Rudolph, uh, wrote this great, oh, Charles Stephanie, Richard Rudolph, wrote this great sort of orchestral piece for Minnie Riperton called I'm the Black Gold of the Sun. And I'm going to play that track right now. And this track sort of sums up a lot of what Rotary Connection was all about. It brings in these classical motifs. It brings in these psychedelic arrangements. And also, Charles Stephanie idolized George Martin. And he, he thought that George Martin was better than the Beatles, that the Beatles were kind of ancillary to him. But the thing was, Charles Stepney didn't have the budget to do what George Martin did. So he's cutting and splicing tape by hand to put this wonderful collage together. And the lyrics really speak for themselves. So I'm going to play this one track right now, and this is going to introduce um, this topic that I wrote a book about. So, I mean, this is, uh, we got the whole... See, it's, it's kind of easier with a computer. You just push a button. That's, that's what the young kids do. Um, so play this right now. So this is I'm the Black Gold of the Sun from Rotary Connection. This is all Stephanie here. Thank you. 
getting more into the psychedelics. church on guitar. They had chess session people play on the records. cut it off when the groove is going, but you can hear the rest later. We're going to have like a little party afterwards. So anyway, the themes that keep coming up throughout the story here is one of empowerment, one of people looking in a way to empower themselves, a way for young African Americans who were growing up in Chicago in a time when the city considered them to be invisible and they were forming their own identities. The book starts in 1958, and it ends in 1983, a 25-year period, which I thought was a good, solid number. And also because that way, in 1958, it begins with a young group called The Impressions walking down Record Row on South Michigan Avenue looking for a record deal. It ends in 1983, and Harold Washington becomes mayor of Chicago, first African-American mayor of Chicago, and he wins after receiving a a lot of support from soul musicians who were the same guys walking down the street in 1958. Curtis Mayfield, Jerry Butler, other musicians like Gene Barge who were on the scene at that time. So it's all about what happened and about how it all came together, not just the music but the politics too. How not only was this a very diverse musical community, but how that diversity, where that diversity came from. This was a generation that grew up in Chicago, a generation after the Great Migration. They were seeking their own identities in different ways. I just played a track from Rotary Connection. These were a group of young hippies of different colors, different backgrounds, whose identity became let's work together to create something really different than everybody else. And it's still under the envelope of, envelope, envelope of soul music. Little uh, aside here, if you bear with me. Um, so I got into an online argument with someone. Now, I don't recommend arguing with people on Facebook. I do it anyway. Um, only with people I respect. Only with people I respect. So this guy I respect, I'm not going to name him, but he is a soul music person. And um, he said that the, by the way, this is an aside, but it's related to what I'm talking about, so it's not total aggression. Anyway, he said, well, the Chicago soul sound is, and he said, he defined it. I said, no, that's stupid. That's the way you talk on Facebook. I, I said that the Chicago soul sound was really diverse. 
I just played a track from Rotary Connection. They sounded nothing like the Impressions, the group walking down record row. The Impressions sounded nothing like Terry Collier, who I'll play later, even though Terry Collier grew up in the Green Green Housing Project with the Impressions. He sounded nothing like the Shy Lights, who recorded hits. And they grew up singing, modeled themselves after the Catholic Church harmonies as opposed to Pentecostal gospel harmonies. So it gave all these reasons. You know, I wrote paragraphs about this in that little Facebook comment thing. <laughs> and um, so anyway, this guy, who I'm not going to name, um, so, well, you said you're not naming soul groups. Rotary Connection was a rock band. Terry Collier was a folk singer. Baby Huey and the Babysitters was a rock band. And I'm like, that is so stupid. Um, <laughs> Because if I was to talk about Chicago jazz in this book, and I do, hi Yoshi, um, downbeat writer there. Um, so Chicago jazz in this very same period, you had the Art Ensemble of Chicago, who actually are in this book. You have Von Freeman, great jazz saxophonist who's in this book. Anthony Braxton makes a little cameo in the book. You have several different um, straight-ahead jazz musicians like Johnny Pate, very important in the book. They're all jazz musicians, and so one of the things I talk about in the book is diversity and keeping things as open as possible, as diverse as possible in terms of musical definition, because that was the background of everybody in the book. They all came from such different places. And one of the things I talk about in terms of cultural power is that, you know, in diversity is strength. And I think that was very true of art and culture in Chicago in this period. It's true today, too, actually. Um, one of the things that I learned in writing the book, and I wrote this little afterward, is that right now, as of like 2020, there's this great resurgence of young artists who are connected to R&B, connected to the soul tradition. They sound nothing like anybody who also sounded like nothing like anybody who I talked about. And they're coming up in Chicago today, and I'm really was one of the things I was happy to see. But Getting back to the book. So another reason why I wrote the book is because not only was there that track of integrationist music in Chicago as personified by the Rotary Connection, but there was another track too. And again, it was that same sense of empowerment. And there was a musician in Chicago who just died a couple years ago. His name was Keelan Phil Karan. Is anybody familiar with him? Well, Dylan, you're from Chicago. You don't count. Anybody who's not from Chicago... You know about him? You do? Great. Okay. So Phil Caron was a very fascinating guy. And he played trumpet with Sun Ra and the Sun Ra Orchestra, who were based in Chicago in the 1950s, recording jazz and soul music in Chicago. The soul music people don't really know about, but it's there. And he went on to um, be active in the Musicians' Union, and when the Musicians' Union became integrated in the 1960s, he felt that African-American musicians like himself um, were not being treated fairly before or after. So he started his own operation that was called the Afro Arts Theater. Afro Arts was spelled with two Fs uh, because it was from Africa. From, so he said from Africa, so that means two Fs. And I had to correct the proofreader so many times on that. Anyway, he starts the Afro Arts Theater. He co-founds the AACM, the Chicago Jazz Collective. And he runs the Afro Arts Theater, but he doesn't just run this Afrocentric school of thought, this Afrocentric theater. 
he's bringing in his own ideas, his own ideas of spirituality, his own ideas of merging African instruments with Western, Western instruments, European instruments. He studied the Schillinger system, didn't like it because it was too abstract. And he starts playing this modified thumb piano, which was based on a kalimba. He called it the Francophone, named after his aunt, Frankie. And he has this theater on the south side. Well, who starts showing up? Well, a um, young man who was playing drums with Ramsey Lewis, the young man was named Maurice White. Maurice White shows up at the Afro Arts Theater and says, hmm, I think I can take that instrument and put it in my own group, Earth, Wind, and Fire. So he's also educating people at the Afro Arts Theater. He's teaching Afrocentric thought. And there was a young singer, a teenager, and she was involved with the Black Panther Party in Chicago. Uh, she was a follower of Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton spoke at the Afro Arts Theater, as did Stokely Carmichael, Bay Area reference again. And so um, this young singer named Yvette Stevens started showing up at the Afro Arts Theater, and she really got into the Afrocentric thought there. And she um, went to a Yoruba naming ceremony at the Afro Arts Theater. She changed her first name to Shaka. Later, she marries a musician named Hassan Khan, takes his last name, becomes Shaka Khan. She learns from the Afro Arts Theater. The Afro Arts Theater had a house band. The house band was a group called the Pharaohs. And some of the members of the Pharaohs went off to join Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, like Don Myrick, who was also a teacher to Roscoe Mitchell of the Art Ensemble of Chicago. All these worlds intermingled. And the Pharaohs realized, OK, we're going to play R&B. We're going to play funk. But we want to have a sense of consciousness here on the south side. And they released one album. And I'm going to play you a track from it, a track that should have been a big hit. And it was a track that personified their goals, their ideals, and their search for freedom. So I'm going to play you the uh, Pharaoh's Freedom Road. And if these horns sound familiar, it's because these horns showed up on Earth, Wind, and Fire. As did the percussionist, who went also went on to work for Ramsey Lewis, named Durf Recklaw. The other stayed in Chicago. So um, that was, again, yes. 
what year or years is all this going on? Okay, so this period I'm talking about, actually, um, both tracks I played were actually from like around 70, 71. My book is, of course, you know, before or after that, but um, I just chose 1970, 71 tracks tonight. Um, the book has a lengthy discography, and um, I probably should have brought more records in, but it was hard enough to carry. Figured, you know, I'll just bring some CDs, put in my pocket, we're good. Um, so it was funny, too, because... Um, when uh, I spoke at um, Book Soup in L.A., and um, so, uh, a friend of mine who's a musician in the audience commented, um, he said, why is all the drumming the same when all the tracks you're playing? I'm like, oh, yeah, because I brought all the tracks with the same drummer. Um, you know, had I brought in the Shy Lights, they would have had a different drummer. It would have sounded very different. So, um, In fact, the drummer was supposed to actually be in the audience that night, but got held up, so another story. Um, one of the things that uh, I also wanted to bring out in the book was that as I mentioned earlier, that one of the things that made Chicago soul music so special was not just the diversity, but there was a real direct political engagement in the music. And this political engagement wasn't just those lyrics, which I'll play you some, well, of course, Curtis Mayfield's lyrics were case in point, and I talk about that, but also the musicians themselves became politically engaged in different ways. I mentioned earlier that the musicians' union, the musicians' union was segregated. And for many years, there was Local 10, the white union, Local 208, the black union. And there was a thriving industry in Chicago for advertising, agency, jingles, and TV and radio. Of those two unions, guess which one got the good-paying jingle jobs? So the musician unions integrate in 1966. Now, a lot of the guys who were arranging on these uh, you know, soul records, like James Mack, were advocating for musicians' unions' integration. And others, like I mentioned, Phil Curran, said to me, you know, we thought that when the musicians' unions would integrate, that us black musicians would get jobs playing in Bozo Circus, and it didn't happen. So they went on and started their own thing. Musicians also became directly politically involved through working on, I mentioned the Black Panther Party. In the early 70s, when Operation Push took off and the Push Expo took off, it was musicians, musicians, Gene Chandler, Jerry Butler, Curtis Mayfield. They're the ones who really got it going. They're the ones who would have sessions. They would have educational sessions in the commercial industry that once musician, all musicians were able to play for commercials, there was a rise in African-American advertisers. These African-American advertisers realized, well, those white musicians, those white advertisers are so entrenched, making millions and millions a year, how do we stand out? How do we create culturally conscious ads that are different than what the big boys can do? They go and they hire R&B musicians to bring their music, the pharaohs, uh, anybody here see the early episodes of Soul Train? Soul Train, which started in Chicago. Don Cornelius, I talk about that. And uh, a lot of the early Afro-Sheen ads done by the pharaohs. The Wawatusi, uh, you know, done by the pharaohs. The, which is interesting, too, because Willie Woods told me that um, the pharaohs did so many commercials for African-American advertiser com advertising companies, they would do the Afro-Sheen for Soul Train, 
and they would wear their dashikis and their you know big robes. They'd have their drums, and then they would do an ad for like the Harris Bank, you know, in the same outfit and everything. Um, so as the '70s go on, and as there's a rise of African American politicians like Harold Washington, who do they draw from? Again, they draw from musicians who not just can you know play at rallies and get people going. But they also know the ins and outs of how to record commercials, how to do radio segments, how to like get the most out of a two-minute segment. And so it was a real direct engagement with what was going on. And so that was another thing that I wanted to really stress, because one of the things that struck me when I was growing up, um, Eric grew across the street from me, but probably didn't realize it. His older brother, Jeremy, and I, uh, it's my friend Eric, he grew up across the street from me, he's an awesome bassist. So. When uh, his older brother Jeremy, and I'm dating, I'm showing I'm much older than him anyway. So, um, older brother Jeremy and I were reading Peter Goralnik's book, Sweet Soul Music. And it was all about the South, all about how soul music of the South was a part of the civil rights movement. And I remember reading it as a 19, 20 year old and thinking, well, gosh, you know, I somehow think that something could be written about Chicago that could put the same way of talking about the same narrative about, not the same narrative, because I'm writing a different book, um, about how the civil rights movement didn't end in 68. It kept going, and musicians kept going, and they kept being involved with it. It was intertwined, for, and it still is. And I wanted to really say that the urban industrial north, specifically Chicago, played such an important part, such a unique part in all of that. And the years go on and I read so much about Detroit and Seoul and Memphis and I thought, you know, really needs to be something done on Chicago that really puts it in this context, that puts it in the political context, that puts it in the social context. So, sort of jumping around a bit with that. By the way, does anybody else have any questions so far? I'm kind of going around in uh, circles a bit, a bit uh, circular, even though I took notes. Well, I want to play this. Spe- but to, to that point, yes. I mean, with the civil rights movement. Yes. That there clearly was a distinct connection to Chicago with Mahalia Jackson. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Right. Which was, of course, another reason why I was wondering why I was taking so long for somebody to really address that. Um, And actually, speaking of Mahalia Jackson, there's a really great book on the history of gospel music in Chicago by a man named Bob Maravich called A City Called Heaven. And I talk a little bit about gospel in the book. Um, But one of the interesting things about gospel music, and it's sort of like the sort of narrative about, I hate to say this, but there's like a rocket, I hate to use the term rockist, where it's like, you know, people who feel that like rock music is the center of everything and things feed into that. So I hate to use that term, but there are people who feel that way. Anyway. So there's this sort of like belief that, because um, you mentioned Mahalia Jackson and gospel. So there's a belief among white music critics, I'm probably putting myself putting myself down anyway, white music critics who are not me, who feel that, uh, you know, they'll, they'll talk about, you know, the um, gospel music tradition as it relates to rock and roll. And they'll say, well, you know, there was this sanctified Pentecostal beat and that became rock and roll. True, I'm not going to deny that. But... Gospel music and R&B music evolved and changed and developed on its own. And there's this really rich history there that has nothing to do with 
leading up to Elvis Presley, you know? And that's another thing I wanted to explore in this book. I, my previous book was a short one on Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace album. And I wrote that because I felt that Aretha Franklin was never being written about from a gospel perspective. And as her father, if you've seen the film, as her father said, you know, Aretha Franklin never left the church. And so I felt, well, let's, you know, write about Chicago soul music and gospel music, but not as it leading into this other thing, but as something that's beautiful and glorious in and of itself. So, get back to that. Um, one of the things I wanted to bring up in the book is that the, in Chicago, God, the music of the church means so many different things. And to talk about the diversity, and I hinted at this earlier, there were so many different churches, so many denominations in Chicago, and still are, of course. Each one of them created very different musical traditions. So that's why I don't like to use the term the black church in terms of describing music, because it means so many different things. The Shylites grew up in the Catholic church, and when you listen to their harmonies, like Have You Seen Her?, Marshall Thompson from the Shylites described to me how they base their harmonic structure on Catholic church liturgy, Catholic church harmonies. There were the Dells who represented, they were um, black Muslim, Methodist, Baptist, and they all brought together different sources. There was, I mentioned Minnie Ripperton. Uh, she was Presbyterian, but not really practicing. That contributed to how she sounded. And all of us in the Chicago area. I grew up in uh, Evanston, where the singer Patty Drew grew up. Uh, she's older than me. Um, but, you know, she came out of a different pres uh, Methodist background, and she brought that to her music. So all of these different church backgrounds. And then I mentioned Phil Caron, who had a um, religious belief of his own, which was very interesting spirituality that also lent itself to the music. Um, there was a group like the Flamingos, who, even though the book starts in 1958, I cheated a bit to get the Flamingos in. They were from earlier. But uh, they were from a Pentecostal tradition that, believed themselves to be Jewish, and they also believed that their minor key harmonies derive from Jewish liturgical music. And I say in the book that I, you know, I listened a lot, and needless to say, I grew up listening to a lot of Jewish liturgical music, as you probably guessed from my name, and I still, you know, it's like when I listen to the Flamingos, I'm like, I honestly don't know if it's there. But the music is so beautiful that if they feel that it is, that's fine with me. You know, I'm, I'm good with that. And it's just one more level of this diverse uh, tapestry of uh, great, great music and uh, great, diverse music. Um, anybody else have any other questions or comments? Because I, yes, Yoshi. I'm assuming this is the case, but I'm wondering as the music develops, it was erased locally as sort of a private That's an interesting point, you know. Um, you know, I to this day, I really don't know if local pride is as strong as it should be. Because um, by over time, what do you mean? Oh, well, you're... I'm grabbing some water. have years, I'm wondering if there were peaks and valleys in terms of... Yes, there were. Um, and a lot of it had to do with radio airplay. And I talk in the book about the rise of WBON which was a very 
influential, important AM radio station. The um, initial stood for Voice of the Negro, and that went on the air in the 1960s. And the what? Well, yeah, sorry. Um, that went on in the 1960s, and not only did it play R&B from Chicago with a real Chicago focus, but it was also engaged with young people in terms of them telling their stories about what was going on with the strike against segregated schools, what was going on in the wake of Dr. King's assassination, and as their power emerged, and then other radio stations, WJPC, which was run by Johnson Publications, FM radio, how that comes in, all of which sort of sometimes can make the Chicago artists sometimes play more or less than other times. But to this day, I really don't think that Chicagoans, Eric, you're nodding yes, as if you, <laughs> he's like, yeah, yeah, tell him this. Uh, I'm talking about Chicagoans who didn't grow up in our block. Um, so um, to this day, I don't think Chicagoans embrace its local arts and culture the way Chicago should. I think, you know, and I'm working with the Department of Cultural Affairs in Chicago to try to change that because they want to make 2020 the year of Chicago music, but um, there aren't enough curriculum in the public schools about Chicago music. There aren't enough placards for all of the great recording sites. Um, you know, I talk in the book about Record Row, and I talk about VJ Records, VJ Records, which recorded jazz, great jazz, Eddie Harris, Wayne Shorter, great blues, John Lee Hooker, great gospel, the Staple Singers, great R&B, Gene Chandler's Duke of Earl, Jimmy Reed, too. They recorded uh, the Dells. They were the first American company to release a record by a group called the Beatles. And they were essentially run by an African-American woman, Vivian Carter. And the building where they were located was also the building later on where Brunswick Records was located, which was where the Shy Lights recorded, and Tyrone Davis. And they were run by an African-American executive named Carl Davis. The building is still there. There's no sign or placard marking it whatsoever. Nothing that would let anybody know that it was there and all of the great history that was there. Um, you know, I mean, Chicagoans... You know, when I mention Curtis Mayfield, a lot of them don't know that he was from Chicago. I mean, these are things that, like, every Chicagoan should know. Um, I hope that's changing, you know. But, um, you know, I mean, Chicagoans know that um, Michael Jordan lived in Chicago. Um, you know, and I mean, I guess it's maybe too much for me to want, you know, uh, the impressions to be as well known as the Chicago Bulls, but they should be, I think. Um, you know, I mean, we have, um, you know, such a big reverence for the blues in Chicago. And I mention the blues in the book, but not that much, because I think it's something that's been so over-the-top stated. And to me, it was much more important to talk about the jazz influence and how jazz and R&B were intertwined in so many different ways. I talked a little bit about that earlier. Um, Yoshi, you probably understand. Uh, other questions? Well, i take some water. Yes, Scott. A question about um, you know, why it may be that um, it hasn't kind of coalesced before you put it together in your book. And I think 
you mentioned the San Francisco sound, and like people talk San Francisco. But for me, the, the analogy that's most relevant would be like the Philadelphia Philly sound. Sure. Gamble and Huff, and they're like real kind of factory of hits model for the Motown sound. Very Gordy, very Gordy, famously goes to LA to not just be about music, but to be about film and so on. And I wonder, was there something within Chicago that had uh, number one with the desire to plant a lot of different seeds and let them germinate, let them have a very diverse sound? Was that part of the goal of the scene, a different kind of ecology? Or, and or, was there some, maybe part of, because of the uh, political radicalism there, was there more uh, skepticism about capitalism that was growing within um, you know, neighborhoods where um, musicians art centers are <coughs> happening that may have to do with their um, resistance to becoming simply the new fad or something that could be easily you know, lead to disco or something like that. I'm going to answer that question by answering the second part and then going to the first part. Um, you know, there was some slight distrust of capitalism. Phil Curran, who ran the Afro Arts Theater, you know, didn't trust capitalism, didn't trust the market. But for so many others, it was about becoming, you know, the term black capitalism, I talk about this in the book, was something that Nixon would say about, you know, having, you know, trying to get African Americans to uh, create their own businesses as opposed to, you know, having the government help them. And it wasn't quite like that in Chicago because, you know, the people, like I mentioned, Carl Davis, uh, all the folks in the startup advertising companies, uh, the musicians, um, you know, they wanted to make money. They were in the business to create capital. But they didn't completely buy the line about that should be the solution because they were also very much into public education. I mentioned James Mack, the arranger and advocate, and they were all about you know funding music programs in the schools because that's where they came out of. So it wasn't just capitalism in and of its own sake, but it was also about a sort of engaged capitalism, which was not the Nixonian model. First part. So as you all know about the Great Migration, it brought this really you know huge population to Chicago and a new generation is being born, and they're asserting their own identity. They want their own music. They want their own sounds. And at that time, it was not too difficult to start pressing up records to see what happens. We had, you know, in Chicago, some, you know, early success with songs like The Duke of Earl and The Impressions for Your Precious Love. So who's... Um, Who's going to jump in on that? Well, pretty much everybody. And the fact that um, you know they're not going to get played on mainstream radio doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them so much that they're not going to get played on the big AM pop station WLS because they got their own operations, WVON. They got their own DJs to pay off. You know, uh, that was a thing. And and in fact, I talk about that in the book because payola, in a way, was kind of democratizing because you know. They, if you had a good song and you developed a relationship with a DJ, you get your record played. Things could happen. And that, you know, is not going to be uh, a wall to you. In fact, I quote some musicians 
anonymously who talk about the benefits of payola. Um, I kept them anonymous. One of them died after I interviewed him, and I thought, should I still keep him anonymous? And I thought, yeah, because I don't want people to think that the only reason why his records got played was because he paid off somebody, because they were good records. You know, they really deserved to get played. So anyway, um, it wasn't so much, it was this population that was coming up. And, you know, there was so many stories about people like, uh, there was a bandit was this label that um, I talk about briefly in the book. And that was run by this basically uh, small-time criminal hustler on the South Side. Released some great records. Um, you know, from that to Brunswick, which was attached to a larger company and everything down the line, there was just so many companies. And there was, um, you know, some federal loan money coming in, too. And I don't know for sure if the federal loan money helped start up these companies, but they might have because there's just so many of them all throughout the city. And... It's funny because just this morning uh, I was conversing with somebody about this very obscure record by a guy named Jesse Anderson. So every you know, even to this day, I'm still like, uh, you know, finding, picking out, discussing, you know, what made this one particular little record that was released, you know, from some guy who I knew, you know, in the book, and yeah, who doesn't even remember it? Other questions? Yes, Michael. How was it? You were talking about radio stations mm -hmm. in Chicago at the time. Where was it that you first heard Rotary Connection? Was it on one of the black stations, or was it? Were there even like uh, college stations playing freeform rock? Well, let me um, let me just mention, yeah, that I was born around the time Rotary Connection was breaking up, so um, I'm not that old, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm old. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, my students know how old. I can guess. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm middle aged. Um, so, how did I first heard Rotary Connection? You know, I mean, I'm just a record guy, you know, uh, buying a lot of records. And, um, you know, I knew about Minnie Ripperton. I knew about the name. I would hear the name. I would, I would see them, the name sort of bandied about in old magazine articles. And because um, I've just been a fan of music. Um, but I don't believe that Rotary Connection was played on the radio in Chicago anywhere. But I haven't listened to the radio seriously for music in a long time. I mean... I think I was in high school <laughs> last time I was listening. Nope. They weren't? Yeah. As an African American, I was. Uh, yeah. I went to Northwest in Yeah. One. So the group was around then, yeah. We were around, and. Did NUR play them? Uh, no, you, you, I heard them at college. You didn't. So it was WVUN, VON, mm -hmm. and WJPC. And at least, I remember on WJPC, they played the number one song. At the top of every hour, and at right. on the half an hour, so you heard it like forty-eight times. <laughs> and so when the guy said like there wasn't a diverse scene, that person, as an African American, you weren't listening to WLS, you weren't listening to FM radio, you were listening to Black AM radio, and that's what you heard. You yeah. didn't hear all of this multitude of genres. Right. Right. Primarily, it was just R and B. And back to the other guy's point here about how Chicago, the, the, the difference in Chicago, in my mind, it was either Motown or Memphis with stacks and mm -hmm. and there wasn't a Chicago presence. It was almost, you know, you had folks Reading and all these other folks and yeah. all these folks Memphis sound and then. And somehow, mm -hmm. the <coughs> Chicago 
Yeah. Yeah. That's what I grew up. Well, that's the thing, and that's because the progressive FM stations didn't come in Chicago until later. Um, you know, they didn't come in until like WXRT. I think it was 1973, and um, so yeah, obviously they could have played a record that was two years old or three years old, but they didn't. Um, but even with that, you know, limited, the records were still being made. They were still out there. The performers were still performing. There were still people playing at the High Chaparral and other clubs and, you know, the Green Bunny and all these other clubs. So um, the Burning Spear. So even if they weren't being played on the radio, their presence was still present. The records were still being pressed. Um, and the guy who I was arguing with was not an African-American from Chicago. I can tell you that much. Um, he was someone who should know better anyway, but yeah. Um, yes. Well, Michael, you're asking. Yes. <laughs> you brought it up. Apparently you're Jewish. Why black music? It's great music. I mean, there should be no barrier to listening to great music. Um, now, there's another history. I mean, you opened up a big... There's a huge, long, long history of Jewish writers writing about black music going way back. I can start listing, you know, Nat Hentoff, Ira Gittler, on and on and on. I don't think I was growing up thinking, hmm, I'm going to be like my forefathers, Nat Hentoff and Ira Gittler. And, you know, um, it wasn't until later that I'm thinking, hmm, well, there's a history there. I'm not going to write about it because writing history about writers is kind of, no one's going to buy that. <laughs> Michael. Yes, uh, you talked about him earlier. I always thought uh, they were more of a, a early California, like Oakland band. Talk about Baby Who and the Baby Singers. No, not Oakland at all. No, they're from Chicago. Um, Baby Huey, yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, Baby Huey was from Richmond, Indiana. And Baby Huey and the Babysitters, well, Baby Huey took his name from a cartoon character. He sang really well. He danced really well. He weighed, people tell me, somewhere between 350 and 400 pounds. He could still dance like James Brown and led a really tight band. Um, I don't know if anybody here is familiar with the jazz drummer Hamid Drake, but um, he grew up really loving the different drummers and the Baby Huey and the Babysitters. And they came to Chicago from Indiana, and as segregated and awful as Chicago is in that regard, Indiana was and is far worse. Um, you know, that goes without saying. Um, except for Bloomington. Bloomington's all right. I know you're sort of like, his family in Bloomington. No, no, Bloomington's all right. So, I know, but Eric, Eric, I know Eric has a Bloomington connection, so he was kind of like, you know, looking askance. Anyway, back to Baby Huey and the Babysitters. But they would play, you know, they would play all over. That was the amazing thing about them was that, you know, everybody, you know, really loved their real, and I forgot to bring their CD in this whole stack of CDs, but, um, you know, everybody would see them. They would play at, like, some hippie festival in Wisconsin, and then they would play at, like, some teen dance at a Catholic school, Gordon Tech. And um, actually, Herb Kent did play them on his uh, popular radio shows on WBON, um, Melvin Jones actually told me that, surprisingly enough, uh, Herb Kent played them because he liked them. There wasn't just the X amount of money to play them, but he actually liked the group. And, um, and they would play at the um, burgeoning rock clubs on this north side Chicago scene. And they had a manager, uh, Marv Stewart, um, who also managed a band called The Big Thing. Anybody hear of them? Well, they became the band Chicago. Anyway, so... Um, 
getting back to Baby Huey and the Babysitter. So, you know, Marv Stewart was trying to say, hey, you know, they're the most exciting rock band, and they got these great songs. They're really hard-hitting, you know. And, um, you know, he's trying to get everybody's attention. The guy who paid attention to Baby Huey and the Babysitters was a musician slash A&R man named Donny Hathaway. Um, Donny Hathaway, who was a great musician himself, who was born in Chicago, came back to Chicago. He's working for Curtis Mayfield at Curtom Records. And Donny Hathaway goes to see Baby Huey and the Babysitters and tells Curtis Mayfield. Curtis Mayfield's like, oh, my God, these guys are great. These guys are great. Sign them up, you know. And um, signs them up, records them uh, while they're on tour. And um, during the recording, Baby Huey dies of a drug overdose. He was a, you know, a major heroin user and died at a hotel on the south side. And... Um, the record came out uh, after his death. It was a posthumous album, and it didn't get much attention. One rock critic who loved it, who absolutely loved it, was a rock critic named Lenny Kay, who at that time was writing. <laughs> Lenny Kay was also a guitarist for uh, the Patti Smith group, which came later. Um, so, you know, they would have been a footnote, except for the fact that they were a great band, but hip-hop comes along, and Baby Hugh and the Babysitters are sampled all the time. And, I mean, it's really strong sample. I mean, you can really hear them sampled in, like, you know, record after record. And so um, that's the, you know, sort of like, the, there's other things that happen, too, with Baby Huey and the Babysitters, but that's, like, sort of like the summation of them. And it's funny, too. I mentioned a second ago when you're asking about, like, music critics, is, you know, I'm sort of, like, going through the book and I'm editing it and everything, and I'm cutting out a lot of academic discourse on music. I'm cutting out a lot of music criticism, except for when the academic or the music critic is also a musician. So a lot of the sort of secondary comments were from other musicians, and one of those is uh, Lenny Kay. Um, so other other questions? Yes, Eric. You touched on like live music and mm -hmm. like all the clubs, and so you talked about like how they probably have a lot more time than musicians these days to like intermingle and exchange ideas and coalesce all these different ideas? Yeah, I mean, I don't, well, I can't say if they had more or less time than musicians today, because I don't hang out with musicians today, and I didn't hang out with them then, because I wasn't around. It's happening these days, groups. Oh, yeah, well, I'm just talking about as an observer. Um, you know, I'm, you know, not anybody think I'm some camp follower or anything. Um, I follow you, Eric, that's all right. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, let me get back to what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, and I talked to, um, one of the great things about Chicago at that time was I talk about a singer named Ruby Andrews, who was, um, she's still performing today, and um, Casanova, Casanova, your days, and that was also, interestingly enough, um, Joshi Joe Armstead, who ran the production company, was another African-American woman who was involved in, and that was another interesting thing about Chicago at that time, was that there were African-American women executives, uh, Vivian Carter, um, Joshy Joe Armstead. Um, so, you know, there were some, certainly, um, so many of them. But anyway, getting back to Ruby Andrews, is that, um, you know, she comes to Chicago from Mississippi, and, you know, she's able as a young, not young, well, teenage, I guess that's young, um, you know, as a, as a teenager, to hang out in clubs like the Green Bunny with jazz musicians like Cannonball Adderley. And, you know, she can have these experiences that she felt she couldn't have had in the South just being with, like, the hippest, you know, jazz musicians and just learning from them and talking with them. And then, um, 
when I talked to members of the Pharaohs, and they would talk about touring with the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And they wouldn't just exchange ideas in terms of music, they would exchange members. The percussionist Don Moyer, they would, um, although the Pharaohs said that the Art Ensemble of Chicago just got like way crazy on the road, and they told me these like hilarious, crazy stories. And um, I remember when I asked Roscoe Mitchell to confirm them, he was like, yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I didn't use any of them in the book because they were so weird no one would believe them. And um, talked about that afterwards. So yeah, there was a lot of intermingling. Um, and that's, I think, what made the music so strong. And then in the studio, too. One of the things I talk about in the book was how there was time in the studios at Brunswick Records for musicians like the bassist Bernard Reed to just hang out with songwriters like Laurel Simon with The Lost Generation and just come up with stuff. They could workshop. Um, Syl Johnson had, who did the great album, Is It Because I'm Black, which was the first R&B concept album. It arose out of King's assassination. He had a workshop where musicians could just workshop ideas. Um, again, how does this compare to today? I can't, you know, I can't say because I don't talk to today's people, but it certainly happened then. I think it depends today, because there's so many people. Also today with recording, I mean, um, you can record something nice in your basement, I think. So it's not like you have to pay for an expensive studio like you, know, you had to do back then. And even with that, people still hung out. And one of the things also, too, is ownership is different now. Um, you know, owning your own masters back then, like Curtis Mayfield did, you know, was a pretty significant step. Now everybody, I think, can own their own stuff. Yeah, let's actually talk about that, too. I want to talk about it. Because actually, Pat brought it up in L.A. So um, that whole sense of ownership. So since I was in L.A., people brought up Sam Cooke, being from Chicago. Sam Cooke, who I don't really talk about in the book because he left Chicago before in the main part of the book, he becomes an R&B star, crossover star. He sets up his own company in L.A., SAR Records, Sam, Alexander, and I can't remember who R was. So... Um, you know, he did that, as, which is a really big, big thing, you know, for an African-American artist to start his own company. But he did it after he became a star. Curtis Mayfield did it before he became a star. Curtis Mayfield started owning his own publishing, his own rights, when he was basically 20. Uh, he had a guide, Eddie Thomas, the Tom and Kurt Tom Records. But that was the thing about Chicago at that time, was the idea that you know, even a very young man who hadn't become a star can still take on his own ownership. And I think that's something that people need to be reminded of, that that's possible for artists to do that and that they should do it. That's why I use one of his songs as the title of the book. Other questions? Yes? Back to the... Perhaps lack of a distinctive Chicago style. Does the book at all talk about? There was a distinctive dance style in Chicago. I talk a bit about the dances. Chicago was always done hand dance, mm -hmm. you know, and I was and whatever you exactly steppers you adapted, and that's even carried forward with our Kelly with step, and so step in the name of love, and whatever, right? But but it's still a hand dance, and that was a distinct thing. Kind of where you just adapted the dance to the groove of music almost, but you continued that, and you could even see it with the Obamas at the first inaugural when they did the first dance. It also included the hand. It did. It did. 
Not only that, I mentioned dances a little bit, and there was also the different fashions in the 60s, the Gousters versus the Ivy Leaguers. Uh, the Gousters were like the guys who... Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> were you a Gouster, Michael? No. Bowie was uh, you, there, the Americans album, yeah, the Gouster. You just ruined my punchline, man. <laughs> I was going to build to that. See, I always like talk about that, and I always get a big, big build up to that. But anyway, so in the okay, well, okay, well, we're going to go back to what it was. So um, in the 1960s in Chicago, uh, on the south and west side, there were two different main styles. Along with those dances, there was the Gousters, who were the guys who tried to look tough, look like. You know, and uh, I talked to a Gouster who really sharp, I guess the LA, the California equivalent would be like Zoot Suiters. Uh, and this was a Chicago take on that, that sort of like sharp look. The Ivy Leaguers were more preppy, I guess, so to speak. And it was more aspirational. And it was very sort of a friendly rivalry between the different. But of course, the Gousters were like the Robin Hood type heroes. And there were songs like, you know, Do the Gouster by the Five Do Tones. I don't think there was any song called Do the Ivy Leaguer. But um, and it's funny because when I do this talk in Chicago, it's always kind of a division to this day between former Gousters and former Ivy Leaguers. Um, but anyway, yes, to get back to uh, what Michael blurted out. Um, so um, one of the people who I interviewed at length in the book was a guy named Gavin Christopher who was a Gouster. Um, he went on to write uh, the song Once You Get Started, which Rufus and Shaka Khan had a hit with. And he was a Gouster. Well... His good friend was a woman named Ava Cherry from Chicago. In the 1970s, Ava Cherry was background singer and girlfriend, longtime girlfriend to David Bowie, hence him trying to call the, his album The Gouster. It would have been a build-up to that. But. In the book, it works really well. So for the people reading the book who didn't hear me get interrupted, <laughs> just kidding. Any other questions? Wait, wait, oh, oh, but oh, to get back to your point. So I don't talk a whole lot about dances for the simple reason that that deserves its own book. And I mean, I talk about it, and I also Soul Train. I mean, that's, you know, Chicago dances becomes a worldwide beloved. Well, not, I mean, I guess in other countries they watch Soul Train, but um, you know, in America they really watch it. Well, I guess it was watched all over the world. But anyway, my point is I talk about it, but it's something that really deserves its own book. And um, so it's part of the music, part of the culture, as is fashion, but both of these deserve more serious, specific. Because I only had like so much space, you know, and I really had to make use of a real concise amount of space. I mean, I couldn't tell the press, can we make the book twice as long? Because I want to talk about the dances, it's really important. They're like, no, no. We pay to print these many pages. Do what you can. Um, Plus, you have to pay for the photos. Um, anyway, other questions? Well, I'm going to play some more music. We can just hang out and talk and stuff, and I can sign books. We have, oh, yes, Yoshi. Well, you generously opened up the floor early for questions, and I want to make sure you get to Terry Collier, who you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. Should I play a Terry Collier track? Okay, well, let me tell you about Terry Collier. So I interviewed Terry uh, for a Downbeat article in 1997. And Terry was an amazing guy. Anybody here familiar with him? Because I know he's played here a bit. In the 19... Uh, he grew up in Cabrini Green with Jerry Butler and Curtis Mayfield and all of them. But his music took a different path. He became a folk singer. And 
He incorporated some soul music in what he did. He incorporated some jazz. He was very influenced by John Coltrane. Um, he wasn't played so much on the radio at all, but he would play in the folk clubs. And one of the people who would see him all the time was someone named James Collier, spelled differently with a C, who was one of Dr. King's organizers. And during the day, he would organize the students to march with King. In the evening, he would go to the folk club and see Terry Collier. And Terry Collier, uh, throughout his life, would keep disappearing from music. He would, uh, one of the honorable, most honorable, beautiful things he did was he gave up his career in music to raise his daughter as a single dad. And that's when I met him and uh, spent time with him at that time. But in the 60s, um, he, playing folk music in folk clubs, disappears, and then Jerry Butler recruits him and his friend Larry Wade to join the Songwriters Collective. Another thing I talk in the book about is these collective organizations. And Terry Collier and Larry Wade wrote some hit songs for the Dells. Um, the Love We Have Stays On My Mind was the big one. And uh, Terry starts recording for Chess Records on his own, under his own name, made this series of just absolutely beautiful records with uh, Charles Stephanie producing, again, the Rotary Connection guy again. And um, I'm going to play you one of those tracks um, because one of the other reasons I wrote the book was to celebrate Terry Collier. And um, so I'm just going to end my part of the talk with, yes. You know this book, uh, Chicago Soul? Yes, which only mentioned Terry Collier once and spelled his name wrong. Oh. <laughs> That's the only criticism I've ever made publicly about that book. <laughs> yeah, and that book doesn't mention Rotary Connection. Um, we can go on and on, but... Um, no, I love Robert, who wrote that book, but there were some things that I felt needed to be told that were not being told, and Terry Collier was one of those beautiful stories that I felt should be, he should be given attention. Um, so, yes, that's, you know, gets you to why, one of the reasons I wrote this book is to celebrate Terry Collier. So I'm going to end my part of the talk by playing a track from Terry Collier's um, Chess Days, and then we're just going to hang out. I'm happy to sign books. Happy to play music, happy to hang out because I just love being here so much. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you for your questions. Thanks for everything. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was Terry. Is it wrong or is it right? He became very big in England. Um, when he reemerged in the 90s, he would go and play England for like weeks at a time and come back. Huge fan. Mm -hmm. Is it here or is it there? Is it really everywhere?
And does it really reach that high? One color is love. Is it near or is it far? Is it distant like a star? What color is love? Does it glow like an ember? And do you remember if love doesn't last? Does it for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.